1: You are listening to the Already Gone Podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. Before we dig into the story, this is an interview episode. Interviews are important to the stories told here because without speaking with law enforcement or family members, there may not be enough information to present the case. I want to bring you more than an interview. Each episode will include as much information as possible about the victim, their family, the community, and the unique circumstances surrounding their death or disappearance. I have several of these lesser-known cases lined up for 2018, stories that are no longer making headlines, but are big news for families and loved ones. They hope that there is justice for their loved one. They're hoping for answers Resolution Welcome to the first episode of twenty eighteen. I will be releasing an episode every other week, except for this week. The week of january fifteenth, I'm releasing two episodes the Deborah Polinsky murder in nineteen seventy seven and the disappearance of Donnie Martin from Madison Heights in August of twenty seventeen. This episode brings us to West Michigan far from the bustle of the Detroit area. We're in a community known for blueberries and beaches, tourists and Lake Michigan. Come with me. To a summer night in 1977, to a modest house on a rural road in West Michigan, where a local girl died a terrible death at the hands of an unknown assailant. In 1976, Deborah Polinsky moved into a rental home at the south end of Port Sheldon Township, about 30 miles west of Grand Rapids. Port Sheldon is roughly between the cities of Holland and Grand Haven, not far from the shores of Lake Michigan. This is a location known for vacation cottages and evergreen nurseries, a small, quiet community, not a likely spot for a murder. Deb came from a big, blended family, with many brothers and sisters. Her parents divorced, and her mother remarried. In 1977, Deb's father was in poor health, struggling with cardiac issues. Things at home—she lived with her mom and stepdad—were not to her liking, and at 16 she dropped out of school to take a job at the Dupree Chemical Company. She earned enough at the job to get a car in her own place— That's when she rented the modest story-and-a-half house on New Holland Street. In 1977, Polinski's home, a white story-and-a-half house, was in a secluded area, quiet, isolated, peaceful. Four decades later, the area remains undeveloped and rural. The house looks ordinary. Nothing about it speaks of the horror that happened there on a hot summer night 40 years ago. The location was perfect for Polinsky, who shared the space with her German shepherd, Thor. It wasn't uncommon to see her driving around in her red Volkswagen Beetle, Thor sitting beside her. It would be Thor who stayed at the house until Deb's body was discovered by a co 20 Twenty-year-old Deb was an animal lover. I told you about her dog, but she also had a house cat and a pet duck named Dudley. While Deb was young and a high school dropout, she was making her way in the world. She was a responsible worker, close with her family, and maintained a circle of friends. On Saturday, July 23, 1977, Deb spent the evening visiting with family. They parted ways around 9 p.m., and this was the last time she was seen alive. Deb's job at Dupree Chemical had her working afternoons. When she didn't show up for work on Monday, July 25th, her co-workers were concerned. Deb was not the type of person to no-call, no-show for her shift. When she didn't show up again on Tuesday, a friend went to Deb's house, that little white house on New Helen Street. Upon arrival, Deb's friend discovered the door to the house was open slightly. When she entered the home, the television was on lights illuminated the house as if Deb was in the next room, which she was. Her friend discovered that 20-year-old Deborah Polinsky had been murdered, stabbed multiple times in the chest. Deb was nude, her body sprawled across the bed. Nearby was Thor, her German shepherd. The dog was unharmed, and he was waiting for someone to discover what had happened to Deborah Polinsky." Deb's body was transported to nearby Holland Hospital for autopsy. In the days following the murder, Deb's friend and co-worker, the one who discovered her body, spoke briefly to the press saying that Deb was, quote, a nice person who kept to herself. She also shared that Deb did not date much and did not have a steady boyfriend. The task of investigating her death fell to the Ottawa County Sheriff's Department, who responded to the scene that Tuesday night. Assisting the Sheriff's Department in their investigation were officers from the City of Holland Police Force. Working as a team, they processed the house and searched the grounds, talking to Deb's neighbors who live down the road. When the coroner releases the report on Deb's death, they mention multiple wounds from an unidentified sharp instrument, as well as bruises. There are no signs of sexual assault, and the murder weapon has not been identified or located. According to news reports, the Ottawa County Sheriff's Department places a call to the Detroit area requesting help from Oakland County Sheriff's Department Evidence Technician Nelson Gelinas. Jelena's had implemented a new technique for obtaining fingerprints from human skin. Detectives are hopeful that the Oakland County lab tech can uncover additional evidence in the murder of Deb Polinsky. Unfortunately, the amount of time between when Deb died and when the Oakland County technician examined her prevented him from recovering additional evidence from her body. As the Ottawa County Sheriff's Department searches for leads in Polinsky's murder, A program that was brand new to the Grand Rapids area was mobilized, Silent Observer, a tip line where people can share information about crimes anonymously. It launched July twelfth, nineteen 1976. It was one year and two weeks old when it was activated for Deb's case. There was a $2,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of her killer. For most cases, the reward was $1,000, but local businesses and citizens donated money, allowing them to double the reward. While well, $2,000 doesn't seem like much, in today's money the reward would be $8,000. Silent Observer allows people with information on a case to remain anonymous while aiding in an investigation. You can call in, text, or use an online form to submit a tip and leave a code So if your tip results in an arrest, you can come forward later with that code and collect a reward. If you have information on this or other Ottawa County crimes, you can call 1-877-88-SILENT to leave a tip. I will include a link to Silent Observer on our website, www.alreadygonepodcast.com. In the 40-some years since its inception, the Silent Observer program helped to resolve dozens, if not hundreds, of cases. Despite calling in experts from other law enforcement agencies and the generous reward offered by Silent Observer, Deb's case went cold. While leads and tips were offered and followed up on by deputies from the Ottawa County Sheriff's Department, Posma and Gryson there wasn't anything that brought an arrest or allowed law enforcement to name a person of interest in the case. Deb's murder made the papers again in the winter of 1987. Not because of new developments, but because of three murders that occurred very close to where she lived at the time of her death. The week of Thanksgiving, 1987, the bodies of Gail and Rick Brink were discovered shot to death in their home a home that was just half a mile from the house rented by Deb Polinsky at the time of her murder. In December of 1987, there was another murder. This time, the victim was 30-year-old Deborah Lynn Wilson. She'd been stabbed to death while her husband was working the overnight shift, and he discovered her body in the garden when he arrived home from work that morning. Wilson lived just a quarter of a mile from Polinsky's house. Eventually, the Brinks and Wilson cases would be resolved, Gail Brink's brother was arrested in January of 2013 for the murder of his sister and brother-in-law. The death of Deborah Wilson was attributed to a man who passed away before he could be arrested and charged in her death. There is no known link between the three cases. As the 40th anniversary of her murder approached, the Ottawa County Sheriff dusted off Deb's file they took another shot at locating the person who murdered her the night of July 23, 1977. Pouring through the file, among the evidence in her case are nearly 200 interviews, 40 processed DNA samples, and more than 500 fingerprints. In February of 2017, police revealed that there may have been a woman with Deborah when she was murdered. A lack of forced entry into her home leads one to suspect that Deb knew her attacker and let them into the house. We should also take her German Shepherd dog, Thor, into consideration. The person that killed Deb was able to gain access to the house without setting off the dog. While it's possible that the crime was committed by a stranger, I think it's more likely that Deb knew her killer and welcomed them into the house. Because where she lived was so isolated in a rural area, hundreds of yards from the nearest neighbor no one heard the struggle that led to deb's death no one saw the killer's car parked near her home that summer evening her house didn't have much in the way of outdoor lighting and these rural roads are not illuminated with streetlights deb's friends and co-workers described her as well-liked a good worker with no known enemies While Deb did date sometimes, there wasn't a recent breakup or a bitter ex-lover in the picture to fixate on. We don't have an eyewitness or a murder weapon, but what we do have is a dedicated team of detectives from the Ottawa County Sheriff's Department, and they worked hard to find her killer in 1977, and now, today, we have a new team working on her case. They've spoken to people who knew Deb, her many siblings and even her mother and stepfather, who are still alive, and they still hope to learn who took Deb from them so many years ago. Recently, I spoke with detectives at the Ottawa County Sheriff's Department. They're working on Deb's case, and I have an update from them to share with you.
0: And, gentlemen, can you please introduce
1: yourselves for our listeners?
0: Uh, Detective Jeremy Baum, Detective Steve McCarthy.
1: Thank you. I um, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me this morning, so I can share Deborah's case with our listeners. And I just wanted to ask you some questions about the crime itself, and then we can get into what you've been doing over the last couple of years to work towards getting her case resolved. Okay. At the time of her death, Deb was renting a house in Port Sheldon Township, and well, I've looked up her house on Google Maps and it appears relatively unchanged, can you tell our listeners about the location and about the house itself?
0: Sure, it's um it's a it's a white farmhouse, it's kind of it's a multi-level farmhouse that sits on the north side of uh, New Holland Street between 144th Avenue and 152nd Avenue. So, it kind of borders Holland Township and uh, Port Sheldon Township. So, It's actually just on the, um, just into Port Sheldon Township. So, and the house is just, um, it's actually, you know, a pretty big house for someone just single to be renting. But, and on 40, I think it's about 40 acres of property. So, it's a nice property there that butts up to uh, a couple blueberry fields right around there, which are still, I mean, they were there back in 77, and they're still there now today in 2018.
1: So it's in a pretty rural area.
0: Correct. It was then and it still is today. Largely unchanged. Yeah, it's it's uh, kind of eerie unchanged. It, the house itself and even the area is pretty much similar today. Okay,
1: there's no street lights. It didn't even look like the house had a driveway.
0: No, it it did back then, but now it's it's kind of it's bizarre. It's, you know, no one there's only been a few residents since um that time frame, so, and I don't know how, when the last resident's been in there, so th- there's not a really good driveway now. There used to be a, uh, like a little barn for, a, you know, maybe, I don't think cars were in there, but uh, that's been torn down, so, yeah, there's not much of a driveway. When we, we have gone back in there to do measurements and stuff like that and kind of uh, video and photography, you know, do some photography, but um, there's not much for parking in there.
1: Okay, what about neighbors? Was there anyone close by that might have heard or seen anything?
0: The closest neighbors would have been, um, what's that? A few hundred yards. Yeah, probably a few hundred yards. And there was a a neighbor kind of off of 152nd that was always contacted. The Hoffmans were their names. And uh, they, they were contacted a lot when this first came out, but they were probably one of the closest. They, their dog was barking a lot and then they didn't really hear anything um, but th- that would probably be their closest.
1: Okay. So their dog, when you say their dog was barking a lot, the night that she was attacked we're, we're well, theorizing we don't,
0: it. that's, that's the, the deal. We don't know exactly I mean, it's hard to tie down exactly which night. There's been a lot of information back then that they thought it was a Saturday night but we're once we took over the case again, we're not convinced it was a Saturday night. We're we're more convinced it was either a Sunday or Monday uh, based on our investigations and our experiences um, working homicides and death scenes over the years. So,
1: Right, and forensics in 1977 is a world apart from what we can do now and what we know now.
0: Exactly, much different. Okay. And they're, they're the pathologists back then, were they do a good job, but our forensic pathologists now are, I, I would say, a ton better.
1: Absolutely, because if I remember correctly, her autopsy was done at the hospital, and it was a pathologist, but not necessarily someone who specialized in working with murder victims, like we see today.
0: Yeah, that's correct.
1: Can you tell us, was there a sign of a break-in at her home?
0: There was not, not that we could see, no.
1: Okay, and the house didn't look like it had been, well, I, I should ask, does the house look like it was ransacked based on the photographs you've seen?
0: No, I, 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 mean it's, I mean it's hard to say for sure, but it doesn't look like a no, like a, a burglary type deal. But you, I mean, you, you have to be careful with saying that. I mean, people could have gone through there looking for some things, and who would know for? I mean, I mean there was definitely signs of struggle in there, and I mean, how do you know they they were looking for other things? But I, it doesn't look like it was a a break in per se. Okay.
1: Okay, so like the door wasn't kicked in, there wasn't a broken window, but the right. house the house may not have been as tidy and polished as you might have expected.
0: Yeah, it, it was in. I mean, the, the house was in good shape. She was a very well kept uh, young lady. She she liked things clean, so there was you could tell things were out of order. I mean, it was there was definitely not some wild crazy party there. It wasn't dirty and unkept. There there wasn't things in disarray as far as what you would think for a break-in and going through all the drawers or anything like that. That's definitely not, wasn't, wasn't seen.
1: Okay. And the paper said that Deborah was stabbed to death. What can you tell us about the murder weapon or how she was killed?
0: I can tell you that she was definitely stabbed to death. We're not 100% sure what the weapon is beyond that I don't know that we can really go into further detail on that. I mean we there's been a lot of uh urban myths I I would say over the years. There's been a lot of wording out there been about a screwdriver and stuff like that. We're pretty confident it's not something like that. But um without going into much further detail there's been some ideas but um all I can tell you is it was a sharp instrument and it's she was definitely stabbed to death.
1: And I understand, and my listeners understand, that you can't reveal everything. You do have to keep details of the crime in reserve for when you approach a suspect. My understanding is that, that the murder weapon itself was not recovered. That's correct. Okay. I also read in the paper that you feel that a woman may be involved in Deborah's death, either as the killer or as an accomplice.
0: Sure. Yep.
1: Now, when we spoke a little bit earlier and when I spoke with Detective Sparks, there's been renewed interest in Deborah's case over the last two years. Can you talk about what led up to that?
0: Well, there's always been a a lot of interest based on the proximity of the the three murders, which were uh, Deb Wilson, um, the Brinks murder, and Polinsky. You know, they were all in pretty close proximity, so they were... They were interested in, do we have a serial type killer at that time? Absolutely. Uh, we've since <clears throat> done resolution to the brinks with, uh, we convicted Ryan Weingarten and that one. And the Deb Wilson, um, there's been some, um, there was some charges brought on a subject in that case. There was another subject that they were they were going to attempt to get charges on who passed away. So there's some, some belief that they, you know, who was involved in that as well. So there's the belief that now these are not; they are all separate murders. So I guess the idea was just keep con- continuing on with Polinsky. But as we went into Polinsky, and then Detective Sparks and I got into this case, we immediately saw that there was some evidence that uh, went to the lab and uh, gave us an idea that there was a female there, you know, at least there at the scene or maybe involved in the altercation. So that's what kind of gave us some some new life in this case. So,
1: you know. I asked if um, that you've been working on this for the last couple of years and what sort of response have you gotten from the community? Are they excited to see it opened again? Are they helpful?
0: I would say a majority of the people are very helpful. They want to see it solved. Of course, there's very, there's few that uh, are tired of being interviewed. They they will make comments like, you know, this again, but once we sit down with them explain to them why we're doing this and and that the family, you know, her mom is still alive and her stepfather is still alive and and her mom, you know, would like some closure before she passes on and she's made the comment that she has no more tears to cry, that they've you know, they've they've all gone and hopefully we can give her family and, and her brothers and sisters some closure. Um, they kinda open up, so it's been really good. <clears throat> the news releases have been good, the social media now has been really great. We're getting tons of responses on there, almost it's hard to keep up with some in summer you gotta see if there there's kind of repeats but every little piece has been very helpful. So I'd say that the com- community been by and large has been very helpful. It's surprising how many people really have a good memory of this um from back in that time frame to be honest with you. And Colin was much a smaller community back then, so almost everybody had some kind of knowledge of this one way or another or remembers nice. it.
1: Right, I mean, Holland. Holland's a, a good-sized city now, but it's not a big city by any stretch. Um, when I spoke with you earlier, I don't remember if it was you or if it was Detective Sparks said that you've got some evidence and you've heard about some new technology, so you've got some retesting planned or some testing yeah, we're planned. We're
0: in the process of, of, that, of that now, and that's what Detective McCarthy has kind of been tasked with a lot. and. We're hoping. I mean, we've got approval now. That was the new thing. The trial is, and everything, as you know as well as everyone else, is it's all about the dollars and cents. And
1: absolutely,
0: um, we are hoping that we could send this, uh, and we put it out on the on the web as well as the, the big thing is with Parabon is a private lab that hopefully, if we have enough DNA, that we can get a sketch of uh, a potential suspect or this witness. We want to send in this DNA. Or samples and see if it can be retested and get a big enough yield, so we can do this phenotype snapshot snapshot of this person that we have DNA of. That's what we're looking at, and if we can get that portrait out, it's been helpful in other cold cases, and and then you know they're doing very well with that. So, and if it can narrow it down, because with their parabon, we can narrow it down to white, Hispanic, uh, Asian descent. American. Yeah, African-American, their eye color, their hair color, their frackling, which is, that could be a huge plus for us. We could narrow our field down by a ton, especially back in in Holland in that time frame. If, say it came back to a Hispanic female. That would narrow it down a ton. Absolutely. In the worst case scenario, it narrows it down to a white European female. That's fine. At least we know we're going in that direction. Yeah. So... We're hopeful that will help, but we don't know that we'll still get enough yield for that to happen, but we're going to take the shot. We have nothing to lose at this point. It's 40 years old. We're going to do it.
1: I've shared other cases with my listeners, particularly or most recently the Renee Sweeney case out of Sudbury, Ontario, where they did the Parabon Laboratories facial creation of the suspect and it's startling what they can come up with. It's really an impressive technology and it's getting better every day. You you have DNA from the crime scene. Did you also get any fingerprints or other evidence that you could process?
0: Right. We have a, a fingerprint left at the scene that investigators back then and investigators, us included, truly believe is from a suspect that was left in the uh, in the crime scene that has not hit an APHIS or iAFIS in 40 years now. It's been looked at again recently with the uh, fingerprint expert at uh, Michigan State Friends of Crime Lab in Grand Rapids, and he says it's a beautiful print. It could be, it, it, once compared, it would be it would take no no time at all to be uh, identified. So it's a really good print. So. Investigators there at the scene saw it pretty immediately. We, and it has all the other investigators there were compared to that print. It's not theirs, and it's not Deb Polinski's. She's been compared to it, it's definitely not hers. So, on top of that, with the DNA, it kind of leads us to believe that the DNA and the print could be the same person. We're not 100% sure, it could be more than one person, but. It's very unusual that we're not getting ahead on DNA or a print.
1: Now, in the episode, I talked about Silent Observer, which was a brand-new program. It was only a year old when Deborah was murdered, and I understand that program is still in effect.
0: Correct. Yeah, we use it a ton.
1: So Silent Observer is one way that if a listener has a tip on the case that they can share information, and I will put that information up on my website. But what is another way that they could reach out if they have information about the case.
0: Yeah, we have our detective um, administrative assistance number that they can contact. Um, We get tips directly through her. Obviously on our new Facebook page with Deb Polinski page, I've been getting um, private messages right through there, directly through there, which has been great, and I answer all those to them, so Go out and contact them either by phone or go out and meet them directly.
1: I will put a link to the Facebook page both on the website and up on my Facebook page so that if listeners want to check it out, they can. And I encourage people that maybe you're not from the area, but your parents grew up in Holland or in the area to share Deb's case with them. Because I I don't know that it's necessarily someone like myself who was very young when Deb was killed, but more likely our parents or an aunt or uncle or a cousin who may know about this case.
0: Right. You know, and I've been sharing, I'm from the east side as well. I grew up in the east side of uh, Michigan too, and you know, a little bit northwest of Detroit. So I wasn't, I mean, real familiar with this before I came over here. Now I've lived over here longer than I did on the east side, so... I've been sharing it with all the people on that my my family on the east side of the state and they've kind of passed it across but that was the main thing with the social media. The news releases are great for Holland and it might make it regionally to Detroit area but we want to reach, you know, California and New York and some of these areas where these people have moved to. Yeah. in Florida. A lot of our people here have gone to a lot of them have gone to Colorado and Florida and Oregon. For some reason, those are the seems like the big states for our our people that have been involved in this case. So if we can reach out to them and and have them keep communicating with their other people that are involved in this case, that's great for us. And it seems to be working. And they're starting to communicate back to me and uh, Matt and McCarthy and, and to Jake. So. And then we get uh, more and more tips as we go along. Or people say, you've forgotten about this, or do you remember this? Is what's been going on.
1: And one of the things I like to tell my listeners is that if you think that the police already know something that you know, don't make that assumption. Call the tip in anyway and let law enforcement make the decision. even if they made a tip back in
0: 1977, and feel free to try to... uh, See if we remember that tip. Could have been lost. Yeah, could have been lost back then or make sure that we've followed up on that tip. I mean, a lot of those tips are all typed in by dispatchers and, and typed on pieces of the paper. That doesn't mean that paper could have been lost. We don't know if we saw it since we retook over this case. So it never hurts. And um, we've interviewed 250-plus people since we've taken over this case again. And we, many of people have told us we don't think we have anything to tell you, or we don't remember anything from back then. And then once we've interviewed them, they've given us a lot of good information that they didn't realize would be helpful, but they, every little piece is, are, has helped us. So I think they just don't realize it until we bring them back to 1977 and start asking them questions.
1: And I will say, having spoken with you both via Facebook and then on the phone, you gentlemen are very accessible, very easy to talk to, and absolutely committed to seeing Deb's case resolved.
0: Right. I mean, this is, uh, I signed up for this and it was, it's not about the uh, putting somebody in a way or putting somebody away to prison or anything like that. It's really for the family. I mean, it's to give closure to that family. And if you're in this job long enough, that's what it's all about. I mean, that's, you giving somebody some justice and, she didn't deserve to die that way, and her family deserves to find out why. So, I mean, that's why we do this. So,
1: I'm going to change gears for a moment. Sure. I, I have kind of an odd question. I read that she lived with her dog and a cat and a duck.
0: Right.
1: I, I understand that when Deborah's body was discovered, she had this big German Shepherd dog named Thor, and that he was sitting with her.
0: That, I, I wouldn't say... No, the yeah, the dog kind of bailed. The dog came out to the the lady that had found her, and she was familiar with that dog. She is was a coworker and a friend. So that lady took kind of put that dog in the car, if I, I remember it correctly. And the dog wasn't right by do- dad, but the dog was a protective dog. That's why we've always concentrated a little bit on the dog. It was a it was a German Shepherd breed, and it was a It was a protective dog. A lot of people from back then was very afraid of it, and it was an aggressive dog. So the dog was definitely around there. The dog definitely had to be around that scene. Now I mean, I've been in several raids and several altercations with people in in this job. They they act differently in different situations, so it's hard to imagine what that dog did. We've been told many times that once she assured the dog, when somebody was in the house, the dog kind of stayed away. So... But I imagine if there was a fight ensuing, that dog would have tried to protect her.
1: So it's possible that the person who assaulted Deborah that weekend back in 1977 could have been bitten by the dog or menaced by the dog, but the dog was not afraid of them and that person made it into her home.
0: Sure. It's a great possibility. Definitely, It could definitely have happened. The person could have been let in her house and we would have no problem with that, and then a fight can ensue later. I mean, we don't know.
1: Is there anything that you wanted to share about this case that I did not ask you about?
0: Somebody out there somewhere knows something. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely somebody's, somebody has to know something about this case. There's. We truly believe that.
1: Well, so you have a good evidence package between the fingerprint and the DNA that you just need the right person to match it to.
0: Correct. Say that, you know, sometimes people involved in a, in a murder haven't committed a crime. I mean, it's one-time thing. So, yeah, it could be a one-time thing. I mean, we, people would like to say that, well, you know, what's the chance that someone hasn't committed a crime before they've done this? Well, we just had it in our last homicide. We've, we've just been involved in uh, a week or two ago, what, in December 28th or whatever. 27th. 27th. That person had never committed a crime, never had any criminal history. So it's clearly possible that that could happen. So
1: so don't look at someone and think, oh, it couldn't have been them. They've been living this nice life ever since.
0: Correct. But I will say this that with DNA, there's a ton more males in the DNA data bank than there are females. So that's that hurts. I mean, when you're looking for a female, but we go out and we interview, we ask for buckle swabs for for comparisons when we interview females that I think potential should be eliminated. We don't say that they're suspects. We just want like an elimination. And I would say 99% of them have been cooperative. We've only had a couple that have not been cooperative and obviously they've not hit either. So,
1: Okay. Gentlemen, I really appreciate you talking to me. I know it was kind of a long road to get here. We've been going back and forth on Facebook for a while, but thank you.
0: Yeah, no problem. It's been. Uh, I thank you for doing this, and we really enjoy it. I I uh, watched all of your Oakland County one, and it was very nicely done. And I hope thank that uh, they get closure on that one as well.
1: Oh man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you very much. And, thank you. Uh, we're going to keep chugging away, and as long as they let us keep going, we're going to keep going on this, and hopefully, we get something here.
1: If you have information about the death of Deborah Polinsky please contact the Ottawa County Sheriff's Department at 616-738-4000. Or you can leave a tip via Silent Observer at mosotips.com. That's M-O-S-O-T-I-P-S dot com. I will post links to the Silent Observer program and the Ottawa County Sheriff's Facebook page for Deborah Polinsky, both in the Already Gone podcast discussion group and on our website. Listeners, please make sure that you're still subscribed to the Already Gone podcast. I have a new host, Podcast Detroit, and with changes to the Apple Podcast app, moving from iTunes to Apple Podcasts, I'm hearing that some of you lost your subscriptions. If you have questions, comments, or feedback about the podcast, you can email me, host at AlreadyGonePodcast.com, find me on Twitter at AlreadyGonePod, and join the Already Gone Podcast discussion group on Facebook. Also, this week, there are two episodes being released. Look out for Episode 82, The Disappearance of Donnie Martin. While my Patreon is on hiatus for January, you can still support the show via Patreon. There are rewards including notes, stickers, and bonus content for Patreon supporters. I want to thank Christy. She's been a longtime supporter of the podcast, and I appreciate it so much. Thank you, Christy. Also, thanks go out to Rebecca in Arizona, and Rebecca in California, Tiffany in Ohio, Donna in Maryland, Gretchen in New York, and Aaron in Texas. Thank you. Thanks also go out to Tim Fluter, who created our theme music, and to Luke Superior for additional music. I'm Nina instead the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. <laughs> Thank you.